The following message is made available for you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Mora, Minnesota. For more information, visit us online at www.emmanuelmora.com. First Samuel chapter 8 starting in verse 1. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges over Israel. His firstborn son's uh, name was Joel, second was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. However, his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned towards dishon- dishonest prophet and took bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and went to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Therefore, appoint a king to judge us the same as all the other nations. When they said, Give us a king to judge us, Samuel considered their demand as wrong, and so he prayed to the Lord. But the Lord told him, Listen to the people and everything they say to you. They have not rejected you, they've rejected me as their king. They are doing the same thing to you that they have done to me since the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, abandoning me and worshiping other gods. Listen to them, but solemnly warn them and tell them about the customary rights of the king who will reign over them. And Samuel told all the words of the Lord's words to the people who were asking for a king. He said, these are the rights of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and put them to his use in his chariots, on his horses, and running in front of his chariots. He can appoint them for his use as commanders of thousands or commanders of fifties, to plow his ground and reap his harvest, or to make his weapons of war and the equipment for his chariots. He can take your daughters to become perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He can take your best fields, vineyards, and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He can take a tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give them to his officials and servants. He can take your male servants, your female servants, your best cattle, and your donkeys and use them for his work. He can take a tenth of your flock uh, and you yourselves can become his servants. When that day comes... You will cry out because of what the king, uh, because of the king that you've chosen for yourselves. But the Lord won't answer you on that day. And the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we must have a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us, go out before us, and fight our battles. So Samuel listened to all the people's words and Repeated them to the Lord. Listen to them, the Lord told Samuel. Appoint a king for them. Then Samuel uh, told the men of Israel, Each of you, go back to your city. Anybody ever had one of these things before? Chewy chips ahoy. I think the hardest thing to do is to lift the tab. I love these things. What? I love these things. And it's good too. It's soft. And it's chewy. <clears throat> and I'm going to choke up here. <coughs> you don't even need teeth to chew a cookie like this. It's so tender. And it tastes like one of those cookies that your mom might make for you. And I bet. As I'm describing it, 
You want a cookie now. Seriously, anybody want a cookie? Sorry, you can't have one. These are mine. They're not good for you. But they're good for me or anyone else that I would want to, to give them to. They're very good and they smell very good. And now that I have told you all that you can't have a cookie, how many of you want one even more now? That your appetite is just being wet for it. Perhaps now that I've said no, you're plotting how to get one of these behind my back. Maybe right after service, you're going to run over to the Union Street Cafe and get some sweets before you go. Maybe on your way back, to Co- uh, back home, you'll stop at Coburn's and you'll get one of these. These were on sale last week, by the way, for 25 cents an ounce. And so that sale's probably over. But some of you might be plotting on how to get a cookie. And maybe you are quietly resenting me right now. And you're wondering how much longer is he going to go with this illustration. And, um, well, I mean, to tell you the truth, I could go for a while because there are actually four sections of cookies in here. But I'm not going to go that far uh, with it. Um, But this thing here, made by the National Biscuit Company, which is Nabisco. I didn't know if you knew that was the full name of their company. Um, gives us an illustration of what advertisers and marketers have known for years and years and years. That uh, consumers, when presented with something that they don't have, that looks desirable, especially when someone else has it and they can't have it yet, makes them want it even more. We are sinfully hardwired to want that which is not ours. So I'm going to put this right here to serve as a a bit of a reminder of what this text points to. And what this text points to is that we are often far more attracted to what the world has to offer than what Christ has to offer. And walking in his ways and trusting in what he provides and what he withholds is good for us. The world and the culture around you is constantly waving that proverbial cookie in front of you right now and saying, God's ways don't work anymore. If they ever did, come, take and eat, and you will find that God is only holding you back. We know better than you, better than, uh, we know better now, so why not come along and take this among yourself? And so in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the Israelites had grown tired and weary of their political situation, and they had given up the hope that God's system of governance with the the judges system uh, would work for them. And so they looked to national and also cultural reform uh, by adopting the ways of other nations. They found that it was better than God's word. It was better than God's ways. It was better than God's will. And that uh, uh, they wanted to accept the world, its word, and its ways as good news. And we, in turn, are also prone to falling out of a biblical worldview and instead uh, vie for what the world has to offer us. And so this text now is meant to recalibrate us and our hearts in God's direction so that we would look to him as our provider, our sustainer, and our king. So let's look at that today. The first thing is we need to stop taking our cues from the culture. Stop taking our cues from the culture. Chapter 7 
reads like it should be the end of a story. Everything up to this point was complete disaster for Israel. Their leaders were corrupt. They were constantly bullied by their neighbors. Uh, they, instead of trusting in God to be their provider and their protector and their sustainer, they used the Ark of God, which was the national symbol of his presence and his goodness for them, as a, a pawn of war or a magic wand, if you will, in order to perceivably win the war. What it got him was an embarrassing loss on the battlefield, and the Ark of God was stolen and brought into a Philistine trophy case. In their minds, things couldn't be worse. They were decimated. God had left them. The one that brought them out of Egypt was now gone. But two things underscored the, chap uh, the, the denouement in chapter 7. First, uh, though the leadership was corrupt, the opening verse in chapter, the opening chapter in one, God was preparing a new leader to come forth and bring the people back to him in holiness. His name was Samuel. Uh, he, his character is dominate, is dominant in the first three chapters. And in the last three chapters, we haven't heard from him at all. Because in those chapters, we find a God who is perfectly capable of defeating his enemies all on his own. From a trophy case, he's capable of defeating people. He demolished the chief god, which was Dagon, in, there in the trophy case. From the trophy case, he was able to send a plague on the people of the Philistines. And to a point where they wanted to get rid of him, they brought him to another Philistine city in which they all got boils and sores and plagues. It got to the point where they didn't know what to do with this ark anymore. And so the only solution that they have is to send them back with an apology note. And so the ark ends up taking residence in this guy named Abinadab's house, and it was there for 20 years. Everything at this point is good. And chapter 7 feels like a nice ending. Samuel calls all of Israel together, not just the Israelites, but all the people from the tribes. And they, they cast out their idols, they get rid of them, they repent of their sins, and they offer sacrifices, and then when, when trouble arrives, and the Philistines are going to come and, uh, and invade Israelite territory, the Lord shows up and puts the Philistines in such a confusion that the Israelites are able to push them back and push them away, getting the land that the Philistines had taken from them back in their possession. There was peace between them and the Ammonites, and the chapter ends like this. It says, Samuel judged Israel throughout his life. Every year he would go on a circuit to Bethel, Gil uh, Gilgal, and Mizpah and would judge Israel at all these locations. Then he would return to Ramah because his home was there. And he judged Israel there and built an altar to the Lord there. So this is like a backdrop for a Robert Burns, uh, Robert Barrett uh, Robert Browning, I have too many poets in my head right now, Robert Browning's poems, it's called Pippa's Song, where it says, the years at the spring, the days at the morn, mornings at seven, the hillsides do pearled, the larks on the wing, the snail on the thorn, God's in his heaven, all is right with the world. But the minute you turn to chapter eight, you realize that it is not good. 
We're confronted with a major problem right away in verse 1. It says, when Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges over Israel. This has never happened before. Never in the history of Israel have they appointed the leader that they wanted over them. It was only God that appointed them. And it was rare for Samuel to fall into such blatant sin. It wasn't his job to appoint leaders. It was God's job to do that. It was a flagrant foul that displayed his, his distrust in the Lord and showed confidence in himself and his own ability to choose what he thought was best for the nation. And added to the problem was this, uh, of the appointment was the character of his sons. Look in verse 2. His firstborn son's name was Joel, second Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. However, his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned toward dishonest prophets. They took bribes and they perverted justice. This is sounding an awful lot like Eli from just a few chapters back and, and his wicked sons, how they would pervert the, the, uh, the sacrifices and what their job was as as priests. And here we find that Samuel, the godly prophet, was so careless in his fatherhood. And also his concern for the spiritual well-being of Israel was severely lacking. Maybe he thought that if he could appoint them to leadership duties, that responsibility would make them grow up. But friends, leaders should never be placed in leadership in order to see if they grow up. Leadership is a place for those that have proven their leadership. It's not a petri dish to see how someone fares. The leaders see this problem and they confront him in verse 4. All the elders of Israel, and by the way, these elders are the ones that had the brilliant plan to bring the ark out into the battlefield... The elders of Israel gathered together and went to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Therefore, appoint a judge, uh, a king to judge us. So the elders, they're not being ageists here. They're not discriminating against Samuel and saying, hey, Samuel, you're starting to lose it a little bit here and we need another leader. Rather, what they're doing is a very a noble thing. They realize that Samuel's probably not going to be around for much longer. And so they need to have a, a plan in place in order to figure out how are we going to get by? How are we going to survive as a nation? But it can't involve his kids. And so the, the problem that they pose has a bit of an irony in it. Notice they go up to Samuel and they say, Samuel... We don't want a dynasty of judges. But we'll take a dynasty of kings. And so here there's still going to be a monarchical rule here in some sort of way. And there was nothing wrong with desiring a monarchy. And of course God actually provided for them. Back in, in Deuteronomy 17, the problem was, was their, their motive. Look in verse 5. They said to him, look, you're, you're, you're old, your sons don't walk in your, your ways, therefore appoint a king to judge us, and here's the words, 
the same as all the other nations have. So in that statement reveals what is truly going on with their heart. They were not content with God's ways. They uh, looked to the nations and they perceived that the nations have it better than they do. They're more organized. They seem to be more safe. Instead of recognizing their own sinfulness and their own unfaithfulness to the faithful God, they instead blame the system that God set up. And so whereas uh, God had called them to be holy, to be set apart, to be different than the nations, Israel just wanted to blend in. They wanted to be the same. And it's not hard to see how this parallels God's people today. We tend to forget that as the church, we are called to be different from the world. We're called to be set apart, distinct from the world. We're called to be holy as the Lord our God is holy. Peter put it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. He said, you are a chosen race. By the way, these are, these are uh, terms that were um, true of Israel in the Old Testament, and he's applying it to the church here. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so when we want to adopt the ways of the world, we take 1 Peter 2.9 and we flip them around. We want to be called into the darkness as if that is light. And we want to get away from the light as if that is darkness. And as a church leader, there is a lot of pressure that we face as a church to abandon the tried and true ways that the church has been done for 2,000 years and adopt ways that are more culturally relevant and more politically correct. That we're out of touch if we don't have a service that's more like a rock concert than it is a worship service. I saw one church recently that incorporated Bon Jovi and Aerosmith into their worship set. Sermons can't be called sermons anymore. They have to be messages or talks. And stay away from preaching through books. That's boring. Find topics that people want to hear about and just find verses that support what you want to do. There is enormous pressure to ignore the biblical gospel of Jesus Christ who was crucified for our sins once and for all, for all the saints, and instead take up what, what is now called the social gospel. Just to meet needs, that's a good thing, but to totally erase the gospel or to champion social justice or become woke or become an inclusive community that recognizes every difference as acceptable and holy. There's enormous pressure as a church leader to have an opinion and post a statement for every single cultural event that happens. And folks, that is exhausting. When you have to have a statement for everything, you become totally irrelevant. 
Instead of taking the long and often hard road of obedience and faithfulness to Jesus Christ, we often capitulate into the ways of the world. It's easier to blend in than to be different. John Stott, who was a theological giant, um, he was actually a rather short guy, but he was a theological giant, said this. He said, it is often the last stronghold to capitulate to the lordship of Jesus. The truth is that we rather like to think our own thoughts and ventilate our own opinions as if they conflict with the teaching of Jesus. And if they conflict with the teaching of Jesus, so much the worse for him. And he goes on to say that modern Christians are so eager to respond relevantly to the contemporary world that they accommodate the world's ways of thinking. Rather than becoming salt and light into the world, the church has become the place by which salt and light ought to be reached to. And it's not just a church thing. We as individuals make up the church. We are called individually to be distinct from the world. How easily have you let your thoughts and your behaviors and your words be nothing but the mouthpiece of the culture? How much of your opinions and your beliefs come from a truly Christian worldview or what you see on Facebook or what you read or, or, or watch on the news? Are you in God's word enough to know the difference between biblical wisdom and worldly foolishness? God's ways from the world's ways. Now, don't leave here without realizing the seriousness of these implications. This is not a motivational speech. This is life or death. Look in verse 6. When they said, give us a king to judge us, Samuel considered their demand as wrong, and that word could also be evil. So he prayed to the Lord. By the way, when someone does something that you don't like, is your first response to pray to the Lord, or is it to go and tell everybody else how someone offended you? Samuel here, it's going right to the Lord. But the Lord told him, listen to the people and everything they say to you. They haven't rejected you. They've rejected me as their king. They are doing the same thing to you that they have done to me since the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, abandoning me and worshiping other gods. It wasn't the messenger that they were rejecting and asking for a king. They were, in fact, rejecting God in favor of cultural relativity. How many of us, even with good intentions, are taking our cues from the culture and inadvertently rejecting God, his lordship, his will, and his ways? We need to stop taking our cues from the culture and adopt a biblical worldview. And second, we need to heed God's warnings. We should heed God's warnings. I had a friend in high school uh, who decided to take up smoking. This is not too, you know, if you're a smoker, fine, that's your thing. But he was underage. And as underage, he wanted to hide it from his parents. But... How well can you cover up a smoking habit? His parents found out about it. And uh, unlike most parents, which maybe they would, uh, you know, panic, take things away, punish them, ground them, whatever you want to call it, uh, their dad, though he wasn't a Christian, did something rather biblical. He sat his son down, 
and gave him a cigarette. Kid smoked it, gave him another one. Kid smoked it, gave him another one, and another one, and another one, and another one, until the kid threw up. Kid never smoked again. Because he knew that what this child was doing was bad for him, and so he was going to give him over to it to see what was going on in his health and in his, in his life, and he never did it again. We tend to think about judgment and punishment as the normal parent would. Well, punitively, we'll ground you. We'll take away privileges. We'll, uh, you know, do those sorts of, of things. But many times in Scripture, God's judgment is not in direct punishment, but in giving people over to what they most want. In Numbers chapter 11, you, you might remember that uh, the Israelites had gotten sick and tired of eating the manna that came from heaven, and they were just tired of this bread, and so they complained to Moses and said, we want meat to eat. And, and so Moses goes up to God and said, hey, they're complaining to me, they want meat. And, and um, God says, fine, I'll give them quail. And then in, in verses, verse 19, he tells them, you will eat not for one day or for two or for five or for ten, or 20 days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes nauseating to you because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and wept before him. Why did we ever leave Egypt? So instead of smiting them in judgment, what does he do? He gives them over to their desires. Back to our text again. We see a similar sentiment here. The Israelites had become weary of God's provision uh, of a judge over them and thinking that it was wiser to adopt the ways of the world and putting a kingdom uh, as their form of government. How did God answer? Verse 9. Listen to them, but solemnly warn them and tell them about the customary rights of the king who will reign over them. Give them what they want. But make sure they know what they're getting. And so he goes back to the elders. And this is what he says, starting in verse 11. These are the rights of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and put them to his use in his chariots, on his horses, on running in front of his chariots. He can appoint them for his use as commanders of thousands, commanders of fifty to plow his ground and to reap his harvest, or to make his weapons of war the equipment for his chariots. He can take your daughters to become perfumers or cooks or bakers. He can take your best fields, your vineyards, your olive orchards, and give them to his servants. He can take a tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give them to his officials. He can take your male servants, your female servants, your best cattle and your donkeys and use them for his work. He can take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves can become his servants. When that day comes, you will cry out because of the king who you've chosen for yourself, but the Lord will not answer you on that day. If you, do, if you do this, he says, everything you have will be his. This is feudalism, essentially. This is what it looks like to trade freedom for security. And Ralph, uh, Dave, uh, Dale Ralph Davis notes that Samuel doesn't um, tell them about the, the, uh, the extraordinary abuses of a kingship. 
He's not saying this is going to be what a rogue king will be like, but he says this is going to be the normal practice of the, of the king. So you better know what you're getting into. And as it happens, the people hear God's wisdom, but they don't want to submit to it. Look in verse 19. The people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we must have a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us, go out before us, and fight our battles. So they've made up their minds as to what is best for them. And even the very wisdom of God is not going to change their minds. They are convinced that they are right here. This is the summit of foolishness and hubris. And we're just like them. Instead of listening to and obeying the wise word of the Lord, we are often deluded into thinking that our experience and our knowledge is better than God's. And so we'll reject what he has to say and say, my experience tells me this is better. And sometimes we will go deeper than that. And we'll even twist God's word in order to um, fit the narrative that we are trying to portray. Little do we know that when we fall into the traps of going along with the culture and disregard the plain rule and word of God, instead of serving him freely, we will instead be slaves to whatever king we put in our hearts. We take solace in being on the right side of history. But what we're truly doing is we're looking at God as the tyrant. And the tyrant is God. And you might not see it until it's too late, but in, this is a judgment in itself. Notice the multiple ways that Paul puts it in Romans chapter 1. In verse 24, he says, Therefore God delivered them over to the desires of their hearts. Verse 26, For this reason God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Verse 28, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they, uh, so that they do what is not right. When was the last time that you were thankful to God for not giving you what you wanted. I can't think of a worse, I don't know if that's the right word, a most poignant vision of hell than for me to see the goodness of God and his redemption in Jesus Christ, only for him to cast me out of it and have me spend an eternity doing those sins that I clung to here, knowing that I could have had redemption and never be able to repent. I can't think of a worse picture of hell than that. And folks, we need to heed the warnings. He does answer our prayers. But if our hearts are not lined up with his, we should be careful what we ask for. There is hope in this passage too. And that's our third point, is that we need to find true hope in Christ alone. There is hope. It's interesting to me that when people, uh, these people approach Samuel, they didn't seem concerned for the Lord. Notice what they didn't ask him. They didn't say, oh, Sam, you know, we really think this would be a good idea. Do you think that maybe you could take this up with the Lord and just see what he has to say about this? And then you know, if he says thumbs up, then hey, let's do it. If he says thumbs down, we're okay with that. 
They knew that God was to be their king. Gideon told them that all the way back in, in Judges chapter 8, verse 23. And the same is to be true of us today. Every one of us, you, me, every single person on this entire world has a throne room within their heart. And something or someone is sitting on that throne right now. And um, the warning Samuel gives to his people ought to be instructive for us today. Any king that they put before themselves and any king that we put on the throne of our hearts will be summed up in that action of the word that continually comes up. It will take and take and take and take and take until you have nothing left. And then even when you have nothing left, it will still keep taking from you. It will do a good job of convincing you that it provides purpose and meaning and true life in itself, but it will leave you empty and wanting more. They are parasites that will never be satisfied and it will make you never be satisfied as well. You can not get filled up with a good job, a family, or the biggest toys. Sex, money, and power will not do a thing for you when you're lying on your deathbed. Popularity will not immortalize you. You will want the latest technology the second that your phone seems obsolete. Our hearts are idle factories. And they will never, ever stop producing these idols until someone shuts them down. Enter King Jesus. Whereas all of the other idols and rulers in our lives will take and take and take and take more. Only Jesus' kingdom can be defined as give, 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 give. Everything that Jesus did and does was given. He gave his life for the glory of God. Gave his life so that you and I can have true life. He is the object of all of heaven's praise. The one whom all things, you included, were made through and by and for. And yet he left his throne in heaven to live a perfect life, and die on a cross, be resurrected from the dead, and ascend to a throne eternally. And he did this not to show you up. Not to show you how it's done, but in order to give you his life. So that your death, so that his death is your death. His life is your life. His resurrection is now your resurrection by his grace through faith. Whatever king, what other king has ever bled so that his subjects could escape judgment and go free. There is no king like Jesus. Only in King Jesus can we find meaning and purpose and, and life and freedom. Only in King Jesus can we experience true freedom and be able to say no to those things that so easily trap us. It's only in King Jesus that we can have the strength to say no to the culture's ways and have the strength 
to stand strong when we feel the culture's wrath for not going along with it. Only in King Jesus can we be forgiven. Only in King Jesus can we have redemption. Only in King Jesus can our messed up stories be redeemed and used for his glory and his greater purposes. King Jesus is the only king that is worth bending the knee for. He is the only king that is worth trusting in. If you haven't put your trust in this king, what are you waiting for? What other king is going to satisfy you? What other king is not going to let you down? You know, our sinful inclinations are to want what we don't have. And uh, these cookies were a, a delicious example. When the world and the culture are calling to us to come near, we need to remember that we don't take our cues from the culture. We take our cues from Jesus in his word. We need to remember that there are warnings that are associated with following the culture. And we need to hold firmly to King Jesus and his ways. And when Jesus is our king, we will find that everything we could have ever wanted and will want is bound up in him.